Hello, I'm Brandon. And I'm Joshua. Today is November 5th, 2015. And you're listening to episode two of the Garbage Podcast. In this episode, we're going to do a review of my new Nexus P, uh, Nexus 6P. And I'm going to do some follow-up about uh, Chrome OS and Android merging. That's right. And then I've got an update about VMM, OpenBSD's new hypervisor. And we've got some community-suggested topics about uh, language choice as well. Cool. So you got your uh, Nexus 6P finally. I did, and um, I'm I'm really happy with it. I was, uh, you know, I unboxed it, and, you know, sometimes this technology stuff just feels like you have something great, you should know that, you should know what to do with it. And this really felt like someone put some time and thought into the user experience, um, opened the box and the instructions were clear, uh, powered on the device, lightning fast, um, just the device itself felt felt really good in my hands. I was looking at it, and I'm, you know, the edges are beveled and um, good weight and balance to it. It looks really professional and high end, and um, yeah, I I really enjoyed you know the experience. So the touch and feel of it was perfect. When I went to migrate all my stuff off of the old Nexus Six, old, it's like six months old, right? Um. They give you the option. They say, hey, if you're migrating from another device, you just have to do a couple things. And they told you what to enable in the settings. And sure enough, it pulled my background, my icon layout, all my apps and stuff over. I mean, it just took a few seconds. It was it was rocking and rolling with everything that I had in my Nexus 6. Hmm. That's the problem I had with the Nexus 5X that I got uh, that I was complaining about is that I couldn't restore anything from my old phone. So I guess that's the benefit to uh, storing our stuff with Google is that that stuff actually works. Yeah, and oddly enough, there was a different experience when my wife went from her Galaxy S5 to the Nexus 6. It's used the near-field communication, so you touch the devices back-to-back, and it it migrated some of her stuff and, like, her apps and a little bit of stuff, but... It was not um, a clean migration with the backgrounds and all that kind of stuff like I had. And I'm not sure if it's because I was on like a Nexus device and then I went to another Nexus device so it could do more, but it didn't use the same like restore and backup functionality that the other one did. So, uh, yeah, it was very strange to see them be different. Right. Um, I wonder too if it has to do with the Android version. Being on 5.1.1 going to 6 versus being on 5.0 going to, you know, 5.1.1, you know, if they just don't have those things polished in the version yet. Right. Do you know for sure whether it downloaded everything to your new phone through Google or did it just transfer over Wi-Fi or something? Um, I'm not 100% sure. Um, it said, hey, we're going to sync your apps and this is going to take a couple minutes. And so I don't know what was saved in Google and what was being transferred over wireless. Hmm. And um, one thing I will say is, like, my SSH keys didn't come over, which I was kind of happy about. (laughs) Um, I'm using Juice SSH for that, and I was like, if they just copied my private keys around the Internet and got them to my new device, that's kind of bad. For sure. But everything else worked great. Um, I activated... 
the device and there has been a little bit of an issue with um, the new Google Fi devices coming out and I've heard like a, a half dozen um, people say the same thing my Nexus 6P um, won't fully activate or my Nexus 6 won't um, fully activate now that I have my 6P and it looks like there was some bugs in the way Google migrated between devices on your Google account and um, they actually had to send my wife and I new SIM cards and then as soon as we put in the new SIM cards boom everything worked but yeah it was there was some weird strange thing and I'm not gonna waste time to talk about it but they're they're doing a really good job the user experience I think is coming together um, but there was some goofy things happening with all these people buying a 6P and then migrating off of it and giving their Nexus 6 to someone else in the house and it didn't quite work like they needed it to. Maybe it was an evil plot by Google to get you to buy new devices for everyone in your house instead. Well, I mean, they set out new SIM cards for free and, uh, <laughs> yeah, so I don't know. But, uh, aside from all that, the device has worked fantastic for me. Um, I, I'm really, really happy with um, the speed of it. I, I didn't think that my Nexus 6 was slow, but this thing just works very smooth, very, um, quick all the time. And it barely gets a little bit warm when I'm downloading a ton of apps and stuff. Yeah. Very happy with it. Good call uh, quality and all that kind of stuff. So, um, looks like a, a pretty top notch device from as far as I can see. Cool. So I've got some follow-up from last week's show where I was uh, talking about um, the story, and I think it was the Wall Street Journal reportedly that Chrome OS and Android were about to, were going to merge at some point in the future. And there's a post on the Google Chrome uh, blog from somebody at Google basically saying that Chrome OS is here to stay and that they have no plans of merging Android. I don't really buy that. It's hard to really buy anything from Google because they seem to change direction so often, but obviously they're not going to come out and say, yeah, Chrome OS is going to be merged into Android within the next year because there's a bunch of Chrome OS devices sitting on shelves at Best Buy and on Amazon and stuff, so it's not like Chrome OS is going to go away. Who's going to buy any of those devices? Right, and, and even support for existing devices. They have schools that have tons of Chromebooks out there now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it just doesn't make sense that they would even say whether they were or not. So I don't really buy this that they're uh, they have no current plans. They have to have something in the works because that's a massive undertaking. You don't go from two operating systems into one operating system in eighteen months without already knowing what the plan is and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. You brought up uh, Chromebooks in schools. I was thinking about this earlier today. There used there was a show. This is kind of an off-topic uh, thing, but so there was a show on uh, Netflix. About, it was called Chicagoland, and it basically like follows around the um, head of a school in Chicago. And in one of the episodes, uh, Eric Schmidt from Google comes to the school and is talking to the kids and the faculty about basically using Google services. And there was one really creepy scene where Eric Schmidt is standing in a classroom and uh, he's kind of like talking to these kids and he's like, so are you guys all using Google services? And the kids are like, eh, whatever. And uh, he's like, and why do we use Google services? And none of the kids know, obviously. And he's like, because they're free. And I thought, is that really like 
what they're trying to sell to kids is that you should use all these Google services because they're free, not right. because they're good or anything like that, but that, you know, you should use Gmail and, and Google Docs and all that other stuff instead of uh, Microsoft Word or whatever, just because it's free. It seems like a very strange thing to be shouting to kids in a school. Yeah, and I think, too, um, you look at universities and they're like, we're producing .NET developers and we're producing C-sharp developers. Why? Because, you know, Google sponsors and puts hardware and software in these schools and says, hey, we'll give you all this amount of resources if you can teach this type of curriculum. And sadly, that kind of works. So Google is getting in there and doing the same thing with Chromebooks. They're saying, look, here's these free resources, and they're, I don't want to call it indoctrinate, but they're kind of indoctrinating an entire generation of kids to to only know and only use their thing because that's what they grew up with. Yeah, I mean, give a kid a $150 computer and all the other services that they use are free. Uh, I don't think those kids are going to be buying many apps in the app store. Yeah, but that's exactly what they're trying to do. Woe is me. Anyway, that was uh, all I had to say about that topic. All right, well, good. There was an update on Undeadly um, that was a link to a Twitter uh, post from Mike about uh, OpenBSD's hypervisor. And Mike has been working on VMM for a long time, and he's been making a, a lot of progress with this. I'm really excited about it. Not a lot of people are you know, hip to virtualization. No one uses it and all this. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> anyway, one of the things that OpenBSD has been lacking for a long time is a is a really good hypervisor that, um, you know, works well and you can kind of trust. And, you know, there's been some dialogue on the internet, you know, well, Theo says if no one can, if they can't build a good operating system, then what makes you think they're going to get a hypervisor right? And I tend to agree with him highly on that. So OpenBSD built one, and not entirely because they wanted to invent something here. There were actually technical reasons that OpenBSD wanted to build a hypervisor. And um, I'm really impressed with uh, these little teasers that we keep getting from Mike. He was working on getting storage working not long ago. And, um, and soon after that, we saw that post on Twitter where he was showing uh, the entire virtual machine booted into user land and um, maybe a, an interesting teaser here is that uh, between when he powered on the machine and when he went to log in um, he thought his console was broken because it was you know sitting there uh, waiting for him to log in but by the time he had had a chance to fire up his serial console so it was booting very quickly from what I saw he actually uh, went all the way through an installation yeah, booted the RAM disk and did a complete installation. And then after that installation, he was booted completely into into multi-user mode. That is pretty exciting. Yeah, it doesn't look like it's going to be long now before um, we're going to have something that can, you know, route packets and communicate with the outside world and um, start to be tested and vetted and bugs shaken out and all that kind of stuff. It's uh, pretty good timing, too, because... Uh... From what I remember, there was another vulnerability in Zen uh, last week that basically took down every uh, cloud provider for a while while they had to perform their reboots and whatnot. Yeah, a lot of patching went on. And, um, you know, not that you can 
ever build software completely without vulnerabilities, but I think that, um, you know, we, we go through a very, very, um, thorough process of auditing code and all that kind of stuff in OpenBSD. And I think there's going to be a lot of eyes on it, scrutinizing it, and a lot of people doing scans of the code um, just to make sure we can catch whatever we can. So it's built uh, to be lean because you can read code that is readable and all that kind of fun stuff. So the OpenBSD Foundation did finance this or finance a portion of this. And he said to, uh, if you would benefit from something like this, to make a donation to the OpenBSD Foundation. And I'm um, happy to report that our fundraising for this year is uh, doing really well, which is a good thing. If you can make a donation on a recurring basis, that is very helpful. Um, if you can make a one-time donation, that's extremely helpful too. Um, but um, OpenBSD is really good software, and it's a big project and we need money just like anybody else. And if we want to see the open source model move forward, you should pay for OpenBSD and OpenSSH just like you would an Android app or, you know, a new piece of software that you'd buy for, you know, antivirus or whatever if you're running those types of things. Um, it's a little easier to go ask your boss for um, 50 OpenSSH licenses or, you know, whatever, instead of saying, hey, you want to make a donation to this place on the Internet? You know, so um, props to Mike. I'm looking forward to getting my hands on it. And um, please make a donation to the OpenBSD Foundation so we can keep working on these really, really fantastic, innovative things. The uh, OpenBSD Foundation also does a lot of funding for the hackathons where uh, a lot of the developers will fly into a a city and basically just get together for a week straight uh sitting in a big room talking to each other and hacking out code so yes openbsdfoundation.org is the website uh, where you can find out about making a donation yeah absolutely and it's easy you can do paypal and i think they have bitcoin on there too if bitcoin is your thing and um just just to build a little bit on what you said about hackathons there was um some network hackathon happening recently in Germany and there was also um a UTF-8 hackathon I believe at the at the same time and um there's a lot of good things happening in the network stack and we've kind of hinted at that before um and it's not a secret or anything but um we're looking to see a lot of improvements and gains to continue in our network stack um in OpenBSD because we work really well there and we're going to get better as we see these 10 gigabit cards um, start to be used by more and more people. So anyhow, that's uh, yeah, that's what's going on there. And I guess in uh, full disclosure, Brandon and I are both uh, OpenBSD developers, um, but we don't have any association with the OpenBSD Foundation. Yep, that's right. We work on the project and we test things and we commit patches and all that kind of stuff. So uh, we are not tied to the OpenBSD Foundation. Cool. Yeah, so we should talk now about um, some stuff that some people from the community asked about. Um, there was uh, one person in particular who was asking about language choice. <clears throat> if you guys have something you want to hear us talk about, uh, hit us on Twitter, uh, email us on the website, and we'll see if we can get it in here. Um, and that's exactly what this little segment right here is. Someone was asking about language choice. And they wanted to know um, how um, how 
organizations or people choose languages? Is it something that the um, ecosystem kind of drives or are we picking great solutions? Are we using what other people use and how we kind of pick the tools that we pick? And um, I've been kind of talking about using Go in um, in a professional environment now. And it didn't start in a professional environment. It just started in me looking at things. And before we get too far into this, I just want to say that I know that there's many different ways that you can look at a, a tool chain to decide if it's good or not good. And I'm just going to tell you how I did it. And I'm not saying that this is the only way. And I'm not saying necessarily that this is the right way. I'm just telling you a story about how we started using it. Um, really, what kind of happened was I was looking for a new language to learn. And just because I always kind of like to get a new perspective on things. And I started to work with Go and um, just build little silly applications in it and see how it worked. And one of the things that um, really hooked me right away is that there was a really full set of features in the Go tool chain. There was testing, there was benchmarking, there was something that lets you scan the the, uh, the source code and uh, kind of vet it. So there's a, a vetting tool. There's something like lint scanning as well. And you can also profile your applications. And that's probably the one at the time that really um, stuck with me the most. We were working on a .NET application and the .NET application had it was like a black box and you could observe behaviors and try and trigger behaviors to understand what was happening, but you couldn't see inside IIS and understand what was happening when you sent in a thousand requests at once. And so we had this application that was running poorly and I said, well, let me see if I can figure out what's going on in Go. And so I built a little, you know, web server in Go and, and I said, okay, well, let me hit it with a thousand requests at once and see what happens. And it was highly responsive, very, very responsive, and I was really curious to see what was going on. So I spent a little time, and I profiled the application, and I printed, um, I made this um, SVG of all the syscalls that were happening while I was processing these web requests, and it tells you where it's spending time in the system. And to me, that was extremely valuable. And the more I use Go in a professional environment, the more it comes across as a luxury that I can uh, test my code and then look at um, the code paths that my test cases have covered. You know, when I build a release now, I produce an HTML output right from the Go toolchain that says, here's the hot path of the code that you tested. And uh, for instance, if I have one test case that tests tests a function, it'll tell me if I'm only handling, you know, one or two different um, cases in a switch or something like that. If I have uh, an error, if I'm actually hitting the code path that the error triggers, and maybe my test case isn't doing that. So there's an HTML representation of your code, and it shows you what's being tested and what's not. All that's built into the tool chain, and, and for me, um, as a developer who's, who needs to do this stuff quickly. There's so many less things to set up. Um, so I guess that's kind of like 
on a practical side why I started using Go and what I started to like about it and how I started to pick the language itself. Um, syntactically, it's a little different than everything out there, and that takes a little getting used to. Uh, I don't think that a seasoned developer is going to look at Go and try using Go and say, oh, I can't figure this out. You know, this doesn't make sense to me. Um, I enjoy the language. It kind of made me enjoy writing software again. Um, but mind you, this is coming off of a, you know, a job doing Java and .NET and C Sharp. And I was, you know, really kind of getting a little bit frustrated because there's a lot of work that goes into writing a Java application and, you know, environments to set up. And the same thing's true with .NET and C Sharp. So, you know, being able to sit down and, and write something and just work on the solution was highly appealing to me about Go. So that's probably enough for me. Um, I know that you like to use uh, Ruby for uh, your lobster site, right, Josh? Yeah, I uh, I started my life in uh, Visual Basic when I was a, a young lad uh, using Windows. And as soon as I started using um, Linux, I moved to Perl and... Um, started writing like really awful CGI web applications in Perl, and that didn't scale at all. Um, so then I found PHP, which uh, was a lot nicer to make web applications in. Um, and then I moved to Ruby. But uh, I still use PHP uh, when I need to or when it seems appropriate. Um, just as an example, I built a website last uh, weekend for uh, you and I to administrate the uh, garbage.fm site. And it's basically like a little CMS um, that automates uploading uh, new episodes and making the RSS feed and all that junk. Um, and it was a lot easier to do in PHP so that I wouldn't have to write a whole new like Ruby on Rails app or even something small like, geez, I don't even know what the cool uh, micro frameworks are for Ruby anymore. I used camping a long time ago, but I don't even know it's popular today. Anyway, so, you know, I'm kind of agnostic when it comes to that stuff. Just use whatever seems appropriate or whatever is going to get the job done in the appropriate amount of time. I mean, you switch to to go at your uh, place of work. Um, I would imagine there's a lot of companies where you can't just pick your own language and there's a lot of other external factors that are dictating what uh, languages and frameworks and libraries and all that stuff you can use. Yeah, there there are. And I think, so what happened at work is I built something and I showed my boss an idea that I had. And the idea was to basically manage some service that we provide. And I said, well, if we built this web service around it to manage it, look at what we can do. And he said, oh, that's fantastic. That works really well. And, uh, you know, when I originally told it, him about it. He was like, oh, okay, well then, you know, go ahead and deploy it. And I said, well, we can't really do that because that's a Red Hat machine and the Red Hat, you know, uses Python for the package management and stuff. And I'd have to rewrite this all in Python. And then we have that whole debacle. And he said, well, if it's just a web service, you can use Go. And, uh, you know, it, it kind of turned into a, a much bigger scope of an application very quickly because we're building a ton of really cool infrastructure in Go now, and we've had nothing but um, 
exciting breakthrough after exciting breakthrough after exciting breakthrough. And I'll, I'll give a little teaser here. In the workplace, I have two other coworkers who um, are, uh, one of them is a Salesforce developer, and one of them is a DBC developer, and they both have an account on my OpenBSD machine, and they're both using Go, um, whether it's writing stuff in Go or using Go as a test fixture to pump transactions into their code, they're using it on a regular basis. And, you know, I think that's a testament both to the tools that we have and it's a, it's a testament to those people. They are not afraid to try new things, which I really appreciate. Um, sometimes you get people who are really, really indoctrinated into their own tool chain and they say, I can't use anything else and everything else is horrible. And, and that's just not the case. Everything is just plagued with weaknesses and um you can make just about any tool do just about anything and you it really kind of boils down to um how the how the solution fits into your problem so anyway there was a couple ex- extra questions um this person asked about uh go's crypto implementation and uh, Go ships with its own crypto implementation, and I guess that they're implying that it doesn't link against um, uh, LibreSSL or OpenSSL or anything like that. And they want to have my feedback and um, my take on that. And I don't really know what to say, except that um, if there's a vulnerability in LibreSSL, and I have 10 Go applications that I have to that are linked against LibreSSL, I have to fix LibreSSL on every machine <clears throat> that uh, Go is deployed on, and then I have to, you know, rebuild the Go application, and I have to deploy it. And um, in the case of Go having its own crypto implementation, I just have to rebuild my applications and deploy them. So there's a little bit less to go wrong there, I suppose, um, from a deployment perspective. And one of the things that this person said was that Go is statically linked, and that's not 100% true. <clears throat> On OpenBSD, the libc stuff is not built into to the Go binary. The applications are very easy to deploy. You don't have, like in Java, you'd have a bunch of jar files. In Python, you have eggs. In Ruby, you have, you know, your gems. In Go, you have to have the same version of libc on the uh, build the server as you do on the server you're deploying it. When you copy it out there and go to run it, uh, if you run LDD against a Go binary, it'll say I'm looking for uh, libc versions, whatever. Um, go is not entirely statically built. Um, you do get a binary that's pretty easy to deploy inside of a, a sandbox or a ch root or something because there's less stuff to go in there. But um, yeah, it's yeah, it's a little bit different. It's not quite statically linked. I do know that the Linux binaries, they are statically built. There's, if you run LDD on there, it'll say this is not a dynamic executable and, you know, you can just stick it on a Linux machine and it'll run. So, anyway. All the packages that you would use in Go are statically linked inside the binary. So, like, the crypto library and everything, right? Yep, that's exactly right. So, if you import um, a logger and an HTTP daemon or anything like that, and those are you know, a dependency of your binary, it will build that and put it into the binary. I think with the way that most people are deploying applications like that these days with um, 
Docker and all that stuff. It's all automated. So I don't know that having a binary that's uh, dynamically linked benefits you that much. I mean, you were talking about having to upgrade uh, libssl or something on all your machines, and that fixes yeah. any application that's uh, linked to it. But as far as like a web application like that or something, I'm not sure that that stuff really matters as much anymore because of the way that these things are deployed. Yeah. And I mean, it, it matters for me because I don't use any of the, those tools. So I do have to log into each machine and upgrade the library or rebuild the library and everything. But yeah, so I guess that's a good point. If you're not using a tool like that, it's a little bit different than if you are. All right. So the last point, um, the last comment, I suppose, is that the crypto library in Go is young. And I don't know what that means exactly. I think the implementation is young. I think all the crypto that's in there is um, what you're going to find in everything else. I will say there was a funny thing that happened. I think Go is about five years old. I deployed a web application, and I had someone try and connect another service to it, and it said, oh, I can't connect to the SSL. There's not a, a Cypher Suite compatible or something like that. And it turns out that um, the only way you could connect using this broken client that they had was to have stuff that was so old and so deprecated, it didn't even get built in to go. <laughs> um, and I was, I was kind of baffled at that. I'm like, I mean, this thing has been around for five years, so you've got to imagine when they built this, they probably adopted the stuff that was normal five years ago. And, yeah, for whatever reason, the, the crypto that was enabled in the Go application was, I guess, too new or, you know, they couldn't, I don't know. I was just happy that they weren't using broken crypto by default in the Go application, and there was a good, healthy choice of Cypher Suites to be using. So, Yeah, and as far as it being young, I mean, I guess there's an, the argument that not a, it hasn't had enough eyeballs on it. Mm -hmm. But A, you're not going to have as many of the uh, problems that you'd have with like OpenSSL as far as vulnerabilities. Uh, as far as the crypto, like you just said, it doesn't have a lot of the old stuff that doesn't get used as much. Right. And three, most of that crypto in the Go in Go was written by Adam Langley, who most people would trust to write all that stuff. And as much as Go is used within Google, I'm sure it's had a lot of eyeballs on it. Yeah, I mean, it sees more transactions in a second than most of our applications see in a month. So, I mean, let's... And, and I hate to, like, say silly things like that because just because it sees the transactions doesn't mean that it's more secure. But Google sees attacks probably on a much higher scale than any of us. And they see it in Android devices, and they see it in Chromebooks, and they see it on their servers. And I would hope that they are responding to those types of you know, critical threats pretty quickly. I did read that uh, Google has also recently switched uh, everything in their core infrastructure over to their own OpenSSL fork called uh, Boring SSL. Yeah, the Boring SSL fork. And I think that uh, takes a similar approach to these, to the Go crypto library where it doesn't have all that legacy stuff that nobody's using anyway. So you have less of an attack surface and you have less of a well, I guess you'd still have compatibility issues, but I would think I would hope that Google can manage compatibility issues better than anyone for as many weird clients as they have to serve every day. Yeah, I mean they're going to see everything that you could possibly imagine on the internet, and they're going to they're going to run into it probably pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. 
Um, one thing I, I want to say about <clears throat> paring down these crypto libraries, it isn't uh, even just paring out the old code. It's um, being able to manage what you have. So if you take 90,000 lines of code out of an application that's 300,000 lines of code, well, you've made it more manageable. And while you were in there doing that work, you're reading code. And when you read code, you say, oh, yeah, this is a silly thing, or, oh, we know better than to do that now. And then once you're done paring it out and finding these little silly things that you know better than to do anymore, you run that code through another scanner, whether it's Coverity or something like that, to find if you've introduced anything new or if you've broken anything or if you've left little things on the floor. So the code itself is not just sitting there rotting. So when I'm sure when Google does this and I'm sh and I know when OpenBSD does changes to, you know, LibreSSL, all that type of stuff happens. And so code that wouldn't be seen and code that wouldn't be scanned and code that wouldn't be audited when you go out and take this stuff out, it gets an audit and it gets eyes on it and it gets used and it gets scrutinized and maybe somebody else sees it for the first time or somebody else all these things that happen are important to code. For me, when I look at code that I wrote six months ago, I say, oh, you know what? I, I, I'm i not, you know, like a brainiac when it comes to code. But sometimes when I look at code from six months ago, I say, oh, you know what? I know I know a better way to do that now. And so you go through and you make a bunch of little quick updates and you might find six bugs that won't rear up in production anymore just because you went back through and, and read your code. So I think that's important to anybody out there who's doing software is to uh, a lot of stuff gets found when you do those types of things. Yeah, I think too many people try to uh, hang on to the past and try to support every possible scenario, and it just makes your code a lot more complex. Yeah. Well, good. I think that's all we have for this episode. Yeah, if there's anything uh, any of you out there would like us to talk about, uh, reach us on Twitter at GarbageFM or on the web at Garbage.fm. You can email us at contact at garbage.fm, and uh, Brandon and I will both get it. You can subscribe to our show's RSS feed on garbage.fm or find us on iTunes or whatever podcast app you use. Uh, Brandon, where can people find you? Yeah, if you're looking for me, I'm on Twitter at uh, nomercymod, and that's K-N-O-W, uh, just because I like to play on words. And you can reach me on Twitter at JCS or on the web at jcs.org. All right, guys. Well, thank you for listening. Um, we appreciate your guys' feedback. If there's anything you want to hear us talk about on the podcast, let us know. Reach out to us. And uh, we always appreciate your feedback. And if you have comments on today's show, please tweet about it and let us know. Cheers.